1: This summer's best flavors are at GNC. GNC has more protein and more pre-workouts and more flavors starting at just $19.99. Like Little Debbie Cosmic Brownies Protein from Rise, C4 Energy's New Hawaiian Punch, and so many more. Hit the sweet spot this summer with GNC's collection of the best flavors from the best brands. Shop now at GNC.com or visit your GNC store today.
0: Ridley Scott's new film, The Last Jewel, hits UK cinemas. Set in 14th century France, the film dramatises a real case of trial by combat. But what exactly was trial by combat? When was it used? And what were the rules? Medievalist Professor Hannah Skoda joined me to explain all. But please be aware, this conversation does include some fairly grisly details of medieval combat. So thank you so much for joining me to speak all about uh, trial by combat in the medieval era. So part of the reason that we're having this conversation today is because there's a new film coming out called The Last Jewel. And that movie is based on a book, but a book is inspired by a real French case from 1386. So we'll save any spoilers until right at the end of the podcast. So if anybody's listening and wants to go watch it, then don't worry, we're not going to spoil it for you immediately. But... What can you
3: tell us about the real case, the real duel that inspired the film? So, there are three main protagonists to the story. There's a a noblewoman called Marguerite de Carrouge and her husband, Jean de Carrouge, and another um, nobleman involved called Jacques Legris. And when Jean de Carrouge was off at war, Marguerite claimed that Jacques turned up um, at her home burst in and raped her. And she tells her husband when he gets back um, that this has happened. They take the case to the court of the Count of Alençon and they don't get the desired verdict. Um, so Jean de Carrouge then requests um, to the Parlement of Paris, which is a, not like the English Parliament, which is why I'm not saying Parliament, but Parlement is a different kind of judicial system. Anyway, he requ- requests the right um, for a trial by combat um, to prove the case against Jacques Lecry. And the Parlement of Paris has to think about it and they investigate and they decide, yes, he has the right um, to challenge Jacques Lecris to a trial by combat. So they fight it out in front of a huge audience. Um, and Marguerite, who is by this point heavily pregnant, has to watch the entire thing effectively in chains, um, because if her husband loses um, the combat... Not only will he die and then be executed, um, but she will also be burned. If um, he wins, Jacques Lecree will die on the battlefield, but he will then also posthumously um, be executed in the most humiliating way possible. So it's incredibly high stakes stuff, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, how is a trial by combat different to just a duel? it's a great question because it's really tempting to think that they're sort of the same thing but they're not they're very different in their logic so a duel is quite simply one person challenging another on a point of honor um, and fighting it out the idea of a trial by combat is that this is a, a form of ordeal it's a form of what's called judicium dei so the judgment of god you're pitting two people one against the other and you're asking god to show who's in the right So we might return to the
0: case that we discussed earlier right at the end. As I say, we might reveal a few spoilers about what happened then. But let's delve into the broader history of trial by combat. So
3: what kind of cases was it used in? It's used in a huge range of cases. So we hear first of all about trial by combat sort of emerging in in the 6th century, um, in Germanic lands particularly. Um, And it's used for uh, treason, it's used for various kinds of sexual offences, not just rape, things like adultery as well. Um, it's used in cases of arson. Um, it's used in cases of poisoning. Um, and then it's used in a whole range of cases to do with property as well. So it ranges from sort of criminal to civil to political offences. They, they turn to it in, in many, many circumstances. So so you mentioned earlier that it's essentially a, a
0: judicial process and and that it's based on the idea of ordeal. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the ideas that underline it and how it was justified.
3: So there are different kinds of ordeal which are available to judicial authorities in the Middle Ages. There's um, perhaps more famously actually trial by fire and trial by water. Um, and the logic of all these is, is kind of similar. The idea is that you basically don't really have enough proof by human means one way or the other. So you're going to put it to God um, to figure out and to make visible who is the guilty party and who is the innocent party. It's a bit different from trial by fire and water in that those really depend on a miracle. The idea is that God will protect the innocent party from what would naturally happen to them if they stick their hand in a vat of boiling oil or if they walk across boiling plowshares. Um, and the idea is that God will show they're innocent by protecting their flesh from the wounds that would normally happen by doing these things. Trial by combat appeals to God to make a judgment, but it looks very familiar in the sense that no miracle is expected. This really is just two people fighting it out in the most brutal way possible. So the idea is that God will back his candidate, the one in the right, and they
0: will emerge victorious.
3: Yeah, exactly. And there are all kinds of problems with that, Um, not just from a modern perspective, but the thing that really strikes me is that medieval people were doubtful and sceptical and anxious about Mm. this in all kinds of ways right from the start of the process. Um, So already in the 8th century, the Lombard king writes that um, uh, he's, he's anxious because he puts many men have lost their case unjustly through trial by combat. Mm. Um, There's a real sense that it can deliver the wrong verdict. So so was it simply that not everybody believed that God necessarily was involved? So it's partly a sense that you really are effectively leaving it to two people to fight it out and actually the person who's better at fighting or the person who has more luck on the day is going to win. Um, But there's also a kind of set of theological problems as well and the church um, from very early on says this is unacceptable in fact and they won't have anything to do with it and part of that is based on a sense that it's wrong to encourage people to shed blood which is a somewhat hypocritical stance on the part of the church in the middle ages <laughs> but still you're not supposed to tell people to shed blood so that's one of the problems but the other problem from a theological perspective is that you're testing God effectively and um, you're sort of putting God to the test in a way which is really blasphemous and churchmen across many centuries say you must not do this you shouldn't be putting God to the test and they say that um the the final judgment of God will be revealed at the last judgment not you know on a certain day in 1386 when the king has decreed there's going to be a trial by combat so there's a a, a sort of a sense of skepticism from a kind of rational perspective that you know things can just go wrong in in, in this but there's also a, a kind of set of theological reasonings um, which says this is a really problematic and potentially blasphemous thing to do. So if the church was opposed to trial by combat how did they end up happening? Is the
0: idea that you would go to your lord, your king and then there wouldn't be an
3: adequate judgment so you would end up doing trial by combat, was it always a last resort? Um, I think it becomes increasingly a last resort over the course of the Middle Ages. So when it starts off in the, the sixth, seventh, eighth centuries, um, at that stage, it's a f- despite these kind of uh, elements of scepticism which I've been describing, it's nevertheless a kind of relatively accepted accepted way of dealing with things. Actually, the Carolingians are really quite pro trial by mm-hmm. combat, partly because it replaces. Um, the need for oaths particularly about property disputes and they say well oaths are really morally problematic because loads of people perjure themselves at least if you fight it out you just fight it out and that's that so maybe that's a bit better um anyway so there's a there's a sort of acceptance that it's quite a a useful thing early on but then the further we go into the middle ages um the more it becomes something that you turn to when everything else has failed um Mm. So King Philip IV of France in the early 14th century, for example, he's really not very keen on trial by combat for the sorts of reasons we've been discussing. Um, but he says, if, there's, if there are no witnesses, if the thing happened in secret, if you have no other form of proof, this is something that might be that might be turned to at that point. So we've mentioned a few examples from France.
0: Um, was trial by combat found elsewhere across Europe?
3: Yeah, it seems so. It seems to be really widespread. So the first examples are in Burgundian lands um, in the early Middle Ages, and then it seems to kind of radiate out from there. So say there are lots of French examples, there are lots of Burgundian examples, there are, are lots of examples sort of throughout what we might broadly term Germanic lands. Um, trial by combat reaches the British Isles, we think probably in the 11th century after the Norman conquest. And there are some fairly... Um, uh, dramatic examples at that point. Um, Ooh, can you tell us about some so, of those? So, well, for example, 1095, so just after the Norman Conquest, William of U in Normandy, who's now then in England, see, um, he's accused of treason um, and they fight it out, a trial by combat. Um, and the the result of that is the loser is to have his eyes gouged out and he's then to be castrated. So it's, um, <laughs> it's about as gruesome as it gets, really. Ooh. Um 1157, another really notable case, Robert de Montfort accused um, Henry of Essex of betraying the king, which is, you know, an accusation of treason is the most kind of uh, destructive accusation that you could pit against another nobleman. Um, anyway, and Robert wins in the trial by combat. And it is said that he wins, um, even though he is most definitely the weaker man. Um, so this really is supposed mm. to have been an example of divine intervention. And it was said that Robert um, uh, benefited from the miraculous intervention of St. Edmund, who, who, you know, kind of gave him the strength that he would need suddenly to defeat the other guilty party. We've talked a bit about the
0: the way that you might end up in a trial by combat, but let's mm. talk about the trial by combat itself. So set the scene for us. Is this mainly noblemen that would be fighting, and was it a public spectacle? Were people invited along to come and come and watch,
3: and what might that crowd look like? So I think um, uh, one of the things that's really interesting about trial by combat is that it's not limited to noblemen. Pretty much everybody um, can uh, be involved in a trial by combat. So townsmen, those sort of right across the social spectrum, uh, there are even cases of uh, women being involved. Um, Jewish people being involved which is really interesting Um, and quite often people would be expected to appoint a champion to fight on their behalf so I don't know a a woman is unlikely to have to enter the lists and fight against I don't know a a knight of some sort she will appoint a champion to fight on her behalf so it's pretty widespread but I think nevertheless um, we can see a kind of waiting towards noblemen Fighting trial by combat. Um, certainly, towards the end of the period, it's much more likely to be noblemen, aristocrats who are doing this. Anyway, it's a very, very public spectacle. This is not something you know, kind of pistols at dawn with like one witness or something. It's a, it's a big public event. Um, so the, the, the case that this film, The Last Duel, is based on, um, the King of France uh, knew that he would be away for the date uh, that the trial by combat was set to be to be fought on. So he actually makes them delay it um, so that he can return and watch because he is so keen <laughs> on being there. He really, really doesn't want to miss this spectacle. Um, anyway, so huge audiences. Again, crowds sort of from right across the social spectrum. It's not just their peers who will be watching. Mm. Um, and And I think probably by the 14th century, crowds which are particularly big, precisely because this is less common, Um, By this Mm. stage, it's quite an anachronistic kind of thing to be taking place in 1386. Um, So, you know, it really is an unusual event and people want to be there. Um, They take place very often in kind of specially constructed what we call lists. So these are sort of, I don't know, like kind of a stadium for a tournament to be fought in. Um, But the idea is that it's a a kind of bounded space, um, which will be prepared, especially sometimes an island The idea is that then nobody can run away. Everybody's there sort of watching it happen, you know, in a sense, kind of on the pitch. So it has Um, echoes really of like a a gladiators tournament. I think that's a really striking comparison, actually. Yeah, it does. I mean, the reasoning behind it is very, very different. But this sense of kind of spectacle and I don't know, I'm not quite sure whether I'd use the word entertainment because I think people Mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages are shocked and horrified by violence. Um, but you can be drawn to it, can't you and and yeah. um still want to kind of be there at a you know a sort of historic moment, but at the same time be horrified by what's going on so you mentioned earlier that some people use champions to
0: fight in their place. Mm. What were the rules around that? Would the champion be somebody related to you or
3: might it be somebody that you hired, for example? I think most often somebody that one hires. So it, 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 it could be somebody who's related and sometimes it will be somebody who's a, a particular supporter for one reason or another, like a, a nephew or a brother or something. Um, but there are professional champions as well who will fight on behalf of people, which seems like a fairly yeah. lousy job to do, really, for all sorts of reasons. But To me, then, doesn't um, that seem that it's
0: a, quite often would just be a case of who could buy the best man to fight for them? So the richer man would often win. Do you think that would be fair?
3: That certainly sounds very fair to me. And in a sense, the kinds of problems that people uh, are aware of with judicial systems more generally, that justice tends to favour the powerful, I think in many ways are kind of even more visible and exacerbated with with trial by combat.
0: Mm. And what are some of the the ritualistic elements that uh, were involved in a trial
3: by combat? So it's really interesting because trial by fire and water has a really striking kind of liturgical set of rituals um, to go with the ordeal. Um, and the clergy have to be involved because there's this, say, kind of quasi-liturgical sense. For trial by combat, um, that's not the case to the same extent. So the fact that the church is really opposed to it from quite an early stage actually doesn't matter so much because they don't need them so much because they don't have all this kind of religious ritual um, around it. Having said that, at the start of a trial by combat, there are a lot of oaths which need to be sworn. Mm. So the the combatants need to swear once again, you know, what it is that they're claiming they have or haven't done. Um, And then they need to swear various oaths saying that they're not going to use any magic or necromancy or sorcery. Um, They've got no hidden advantages. Um, And they need to swear. on holy relics or the or the Bible that they, they're not going to cheat in any way like this, that they really are putting it to the, to the judgment of God. So in that sense, it's very ritualistic and there are lots of kind of rules to get them started. But the thing that really strikes me about trial by combat once they do start is that there are virtually no rules then. It's absolutely brutal. So when we think about duels, I think we tend to think about a very codified kind of violence, don't we? So... Whether it's with swords or whether it's a kind of later pistols at dawn sort of thing, there's it's like a certain way you need to do it, and you you know you walk so many steps and then you turn around at a particular moment that kind of thing. Um, trial by combat is it, it's just absolutely brutal. It's like you just go for this person in any way you possibly can, and all the sort of usual rules of chivalry really don't apply. You are just trying to kill your opponent by whatever means possible. So, people. Use sometimes they're told just to use clubs and shields. Um, in the case of Jean de Carrouge and Jacques Le Gris, um, they're, they're kind of fully armed as knights, but they unhorse one another pretty quickly. They kill each other's horses in gruesome ways. It's really distressing and really horrible. And and then they just go for one another. All the the, the usual sort of you know brave chivalric exploits don't apply. Use whatever you can. So. Um, there are lots of examples of, of people using their teeth um, to kind of rip off each other's noses, or grabbing each other's testicles, or ripping off kind of ears or whatever body part you can grab hold of. It's really, really undignified stuff and absolutely brutal. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. People think about think about law and judgment and right and wrong and the role of of divine intervention in really interesting ways.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging
2: What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's better H E L P slash history extra.
0: That that comparison you made with Jules is really interesting because you'd think jewels primarily often were based on, say, crimes of passion and immediate mm. response to that, but somehow they were more ad- structured in a sense. Whereas this yeah. was a judicial process, but then was essentially a free-for-all once you got
3: started. Which seems counterintuitive. It seems very counterintuitive. I quite I quite agree. Yeah. No, but I'm I I continue to be struck and horrified in many of these accounts by by just how disgusting it is, as well. And this, there's even a, a one of the 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 the, the uh, kind of law manuals describing how to go about a judicial duel offers a bit of advice. It says a, a good technique is to go for your um, opponent's nose with your teeth. So, so you know this the the kind of brutality and the the what you've described as a kind of free for all is is really encouraged. That's the way you do it. So, how do you win a trial by combat?
0: Is it only won by the death of one party or can you subdue somebody
3: and win that way so you you basically need to get the other party to the point where they admit defeat um and most often that's going to be because they're dead um because they know that as soon as they admit defeat they're going to be put to death anyway because that's what this whole thing was trying to prove so Sometimes people admit defeat before they're quite dead, but it's because they're, they are literally in, in such a state, there is absolutely nothing they can do and they they sense they're dying. Um, so it's not, yeah, it's not as if you have to be, once you've kind of broken your leg or something, they only say, okay, I, I submit. You really, you wait until the very last moment and you do everything you possibly can to win this.
0: And if it was so bloody and brutal, you know, people hacking each other's noses off, that kind of thing... I imagine that quite often both parties would be seriously injured. Where did that leave events?
3: That's a a really good question. So there are cases where everybody ends up dead and contemporaries comment on the the complete pointlessness of this. So there's a a really interesting example in um, the early medieval text of Gregory of Tours where he describes um, a trial by combat um, where both uh, the, the parties involved died. And he says, well, what was the point of that then? What's that proved? So do you, how successful do you
0: think it was as a means of settling disputes? I mean, obviously we can't determine whether the outcomes reflected the reality of the crime, but
3: did it usually leave leave a situation more peaceful than it had been before? I think there's a real sense that there are advantages to the trial by combat. So I mean in a sense the the verdict that it delivers will at least be definitive even if it's wrong. And I think contemporaries kind of respect that sense that it yeah that it, it may be wrong but it is nevertheless definitive. Um and it's really striking that um so the church is is finds it really problematic kings and emperors find it increasingly problematic over the course of the middle ages they by the 13th late 13th century they're really trying to to sort of say let's let's really limit this or let's ban it altogether but aristocrats want it to continue. They really fight for it to continue. So 1314, there's what's called the Leagues of Nobles in France, and they're rebelling about various things. But one of their central demands is to be allowed to continue with trial by combat, because they really value it. The King of France has had enough of it by this stage. <laughs> he thinks it's a bad idea. Um, but they really want to continue with it. And I think part of the reason is this the sort of definitive uh, closure that it gives um, but also because it's bound up with ideas of honour and, and kind of a really macho kind of masculinity um, in ways that, that really kind of fit the sort of ethos and the culture of violence of which they're a part. Um, so there are certainly, you know, there are groups who, who value this and who find it really useful and a way of, of um, kind of making visible everything that matters to them.
0: So you've described that there were two quite polarised opinions, really, about trial by combat. On the one hand, the people, the church that opposed it. On the other hand, the aristocracy really wanted it to continue. How is it represented in art and literature of the time?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, well, it varies, as ever. (laughs) So there are some texts which... um, Uh, give us some wonderfully kind of rich accounts of trial by combat in a way that sort of fits the plot perfectly and and it it really seems to kind of sustain the system. And then there are others which really point to just how problematic it is. So the Song of Roland, which is probably the greatest medieval epic or chanson de geste, um, which was first committed to manuscript in the early 12th century, um, tells the story of Ganelon, who's an evil traitor who betrays Roland, um, the nephew of Charlemagne. Anyway, it's a long story to do with that. And then at the end of the text, um, Ganelon is, of course, accused of being a traitor, having basically had Roland die in a really horrific way. And Ganelon says, I'm not a traitor. I did this because I hate Roland and it was my personal revenge on him. It's not treachery. And one of Ganelon's relatives, a guy called Pinabel, steps forward and says, um, that's right. It was just revenge, and I'm willing to fight to say it was just revenge. And then, Dead Roland's best friend, a guy called Thierry, steps forward and he says, "No, it wasn't. It was treachery, and I'm going to fight to demonstrate that." So Pinabel and Thierry fight it out in a trial by combat. Pinabel has thirty guarantors for him. Thierry has one guarantor, the Emperor Charlemagne. They fight it out. Thierry is the much smaller man; he's much weaker, but of course, he wins. And, and the text says, you know, this really is an example of God showing uh, which side right was on. And Pinabel is then killed in a horrible way. All his 30 guarantors are put to death too, which is not remotely in line with any judicial tradition, but it's a chanson de geste, an epic, so that's what they do. And Ganelon, on whose behalf Pinabel was fighting, is then tied to four horses each of his limbs who run in different directions and tear him apart so anyway so that's kind of trial by combat as um judgment of god it all goes smoothly not for you know bill and his guarantors and ganelon but still it's that the logic of it is kind of essential to the text and then one might look at something else like um the renard stories uh which kind of get going in a similar period um but remain popular all the way through the middle ages as does the song of roland and Renard is a wicked little fox. Um, and he does all these dreadful, dreadful things all the way through the stories. And in the end, his kind of best friend slash enemy, the wolf, challenges him to a trial by combat because Renard's raped his wife. And they fight it out. Isengrin wins the trial by combat. But, and it's really, really disgusting. I won't give you all the details because it's absolutely gruesome. And... Um, but Renard then kind of springs back to life and carries on and does all kinds of other horrific things. So the text is it's supposed to be very humorous, depends on your sense of humor. Um but it's sort of playfully saying, well, you can try a trial by combat, but it won't make any difference. Everything will carry on. People will be as violent as they always have been and you know, it can be manipulated like everything else can be manipulated.
0: Mm. And and were there any other really notable real cases? that were 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 often kind of commented on or that were seen as particularly foundational or particularly interesting?
3: Well, the, the foundational case that everybody's interested in is the biblical story of David and Goliath. In some ways, that's the kind of original trial by combat, mm-hmm. though it's obviously not set up like that in the Old Testament. But still, that's the kind of um, story that people can refer to to sort of set up the logic of how God will protect the weak and enable a... a small boy essentially to overcome this great giant because right is on his side a really interesting case um uh, was also fought in 1386 the same year as <laughs> the so-called according to the film last duel um which is commented on quite widely precisely because it it sort of problematizes Trial by combat. So it's fought um, between uh, two noblemen. One of them's called Gerard de Mortagne, and the other one's called Gilles, um, and he's the Lord of Chai, a um, Busigny. And anyway, so they fight it out in the lists. They both have kind of uh, uh sort of second supporters. Um and there's a huge audience, everybody's really excited about this, but everybody's really dubious and worried about it as well. And their their seconds rush onto the the lists or the pitch and try and pull them apart and say, just don't do it. It's a really stupid way of resolving this. And the Duke of Lorraine, who's who's the, the Duke kind of overseeing the whole thing, also says, just stop it. Please stop it. It's a really bad idea. And eventually they're separated and the Duke of Lorraine has them both to dinner. And um, he gets his daughter to have a chat to them and say, could you just stop this, please? And just submit it to the court and we'll deal with it that way. And it will all be okay. And anyway, so they all have dinner together and, and sort of end happily ever after. But I think it's a really interesting example of, of this kind of aristocratic attachment to the duel. A big audience who, who was sort of interested and excited but at the same time worried about the implications of this and the duke and his daughter who who see this as really problematic um Mm. so at this stage by the late 14th century there's a set of discussions happening which are really interesting Mm. so a rare happy ending there (laughs) um (laughs) yes exactly quite a few of the stories that
0: we we've mentioned have involved women in some way but obviously not in a fighting role. And you've also written a feature for our website, tying into The Last Jewel as a film about medieval violence towards women. Where do you see that fitting
3: into this story? So what I'm really struck by is is sort of twofold. Firstly, that historians for so long have been really focused um, on the men who are involved in these stories and have lost sight of the fact that it's actually women who are at their heart. So the film is based on this story of Marguerite and her husband and this other man, Jacques Le And it's very tempting to think of this just as the last duel between Jean Le Carouge and Jacques Le But of course it isn't. It's really the story of Marguerite. Um, and as I say, I think it, it's quite easy to lose sight of that. And it's really, really important to put women, again, center stage um, and think about the role that they played um, and the, the, the kind of, key that they provide to understanding what's going on and to think about their experiences. The second thing I'm struck by is the sheer courage of women like Marguerite. So medieval attitudes to rape were actually extremely complex. It's really tempting um, just to say that uh, medieval society was so barbaric that rape was endemic and uh, no one really cared. And that's absolutely not true. Rape law is extremely hard line, Um, but nevertheless, the um, stakes for women in bringing a case of rape were stacked extremely high, Um, partly just because the burden of proof was so high and partly because in bringing a case, um, a woman needed to accept or a victim survivor needed to accept that if the guilty party, or sorry, if, if the person she's accusing was found innocent, then she may well be punished herself. And in the case of the last duel, Marguerite stands to be burned if um, the man she's accused is found innocent. So my question really is, why did women bring these cases when they know the stakes are quite so high? The conviction rate is, of course, very, very low, then as now. Um, why did they do it? And I think part of the answer there lies... In immense courage actually courage and conviction and a sense that you know speaking out really really matters even if you're likely to end up being punished or at least socially completely ostracized for, for doing that mm.
0: as you've mentioned before the last jewel wasn't necessarily really the last jewel. how did the practice of trial by combat come
3: to an end it it just sort of peters out actually so i think by the by the 1380s it already feels pretty anachronistic it's it's quite surprising that jean de garouge demands this i think it's partly just because he hates jacques legris quite so much um there's a, a long-standing uh hostility between the two of them anyway at one point they were best friends and then they fall out for a range of reasons so so part of this is because he he, he really 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 hates him and he wants publicly um to destroy him but it's an unusual thing to do by then and it just effectively becomes less and um, sorry more and more unusual to do this um it also just becomes harder and harder um so as royal law develops particularly roman law over the course of the, sort of from the 13th century onwards, really, there's less of a place for trial by combat. Kings are more and more opposed to it because they see it as undermining their authority. It doesn't fit in with the new kind of judicial processes which are developing and the ways in which court systems are developing. So I think the the last, absolute last judicial duel is fought in France in um, uh, 15. 80 and the final judicial duel is fought in England in 1597. But those are those really are outliers. Um, it's, it's sort of not the thing to do by then because it doesn't fit in with the ways in which um, kind of royal systems of law have developed. So I'm sure by this point in the conversation, a lot of listeners will be
0: dying to know what happened in the case of Marguerite and Jack Lecree. So if anybody wants to go and see The Last Jewel and and doesn't want any spoilers, as we say, these are historical spoilers, not spoilers for the film, but they may give us a clue of what's going to happen. What did happen
3: then, Hannah? How did this jewel come to an end? So it, the the fight lasts a really long time. So the the spectators who'd come kind of got their money's worth in a sense. The the spectacle was extremely dramatic, and Jacques Fanci does look like the stronger man, um, and he seems to be largely gaining the upper hand over Jean de Carrouge. Anyway, they they first of all they charge at each other on their horses. They manage to dismount one another. The horses die horrible, horrible deaths. Um, they carry on on foot for a very long time. And then finally, Jean de, de Carouge manages to rip the visor from Jacques Legri's face and bury his sword in him. Um, and that's, that, that's the end of it. So Jacques legris dies on the, on, on the lists in front of this huge audience. Um, but his body is then executed posthumously in order to make the point that he is the guilty party and he is therefore to be punished as a rapist, as a criminal, um, and Jean de Kerhous, then who whose sort of career had been on a bit of a downturn, finds himself showered with rewards. He's he's this great hero and he's he's kind of made after that. So, what would you hope to see in the film, The Last Jewel, as a historian of this subject? I I think primarily. I really hope that uh, Marguerite uh, is given center stage and that audiences really hear her voice and the audiences are encouraged to respect her voice and to start from a position of believing her. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I mean, obviously, I don't know what really happened. It was 1386 and I wasn't there. But I think it's really important that as historians, we start from the perspective of thinking the stakes for women were so high in bringing a case like this, there is not the slightest reason why they would have done it uh, viciously, simply in order to, to, uh, you know, maliciously bring somebody else down. I I simply cannot imagine why she would have done that. She risks being burned. And I hope that audiences will look at the film and see her extraordinary courage and really respect that. On a side note, I think it'd be really nice as well to see a, a vision of the Middle Ages, which showed the kind of, uh, sophistication and complexity of legal thought um, and the ways in which people um, kind of problematize these these really weird sort of practices. I mean, looking at it from the 21st century, it seems just bizarre. Anybody could have thought this was a good way to resolve a case. Um, but actually in the 14th century, lots of people thought this was bizarre and ridiculous as well. And I think it would be great if the film sort of got at this sense that um, uh, people think about Think about law and judgment and right and wrong and the role of of divine intervention in really interesting ways. Um, I don't think that's quite the point of the film, though, so I'm quite surprised if that's what it's about. That was Professor Hannah Skoda.
0: If you'd like to read Hannah's article on medieval violence against women that I mentioned in the interview, you can find that at historyextra.com forward slash last hyphen jewel hyphen violence. Hannah has also written a feature on Medieval Trials by Combat for the November issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes pieces on Tanks in the Second World War, George III and the rivalry between Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. The Last Duel is released in UK cinemas today, October the 15th. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow when Marilina Cars will be talking about a rebellion in 1763.